0: From KIOS in Omaha, and exorbitant creative, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. Today, I'm talking with Sarah Smolin, who is running to represent District 4 on Omaha's City Council.
1: If you send your kids to the schools and you live here and you drive on the roads, you pay your taxes, and you work here, you are just as qualified as anybody else to take part in this and to demand a voice and to be represented on those bodies.
0: Smullen talks about her upbringing all over the country, the unique perspective that brings to her, as well as the fact that she's an educator and how being an educator brings a different perspective to governance, to representation, to communication, to understanding, and to explaining that maybe not everybody in government already has. So we're continuing to explore the people who are running in our current municipal election. This is Sarah Smullen. And we will be back with that conversation after this quick break, right here on Riverside Chats. And welcome to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. And we have a municipal election that's happening right now. It's a little bit uh, easy to get fatigued with all of the elections that are constantly happening. But at the same time, part of the idea of a representative government is you're always sort of having to be a little bit locked in, right? You're always having to be aware I've found that it's very interesting to get to know all of these people. I've there's been plenty of times in my life where I have no idea who's representing me on the city council. I don't know a ton about the mayor at all times. So I hope this has been useful for you as much as it has been for me to try to get a better understanding of who are the people who want to be in the running, who are the people out there who are already making an impact, whether they're in office or not, and then just to be locked in so you can kind of passively, at least while you listen to this show for one hour a week, get to know somebody else who wants to have some kind of representative power over our city. So today I'm talking with Sarah Smolin. Smolin is an educator. She grew up all over the country and brings an interesting perspective to being on the city council. She's running to represent District 4 on Omaha's city council, and here is my conversation with her. A question that I have for a lot of people now, and I think somebody pointed out to me that this show seems to have some kind of subtext, which is, what is it that keeps people in Omaha so I want to start with you uh, about kind of about that question, but I think something that I, I'm noticing a lot is, especially as I talk about people running for municipal uh, roles, is they talk about how Omaha differs from other cities in certain respects, but a lot of people in Omaha don't get a ton of experience outside of Omaha. So you you uh, grew up all over the place, right? Yes, that's
1: right. I was um, a military kid.
0: So where were where were some of the places you you grew up?
1: Um, so I was born in Anchorage, Alaska, um, and then over the course for like the next fifteen years or so, we've moved to Texas, um, like in the, the San Angelo area, um, and then here in Omaha, um, we're actually my dad stationed at off the Air Force Base, so we like lived in Bellevue, um, and then we went down to Miami, Florida. And then when he retired a little bit after that, we came back here. So kind of like I've been in like the furthest points um, <laughs> from each other. So I've experienced a lot of extreme weather.
0: Yeah. Well, and probably uh, some differing cultures, right? How did some of those places form you?
1: Oh, yeah. So, um, yeah, you know, I don't remember much about Alaska just because I was very young when we lived there. Um, but I know that when we moved from Nebraska to South Florida, that was like a big shock because The entire population of like the county we lived in in Florida was the same as this whole state of Nebraska. So, just like a lot more people in a much smaller area. And then also, just like the diversity of that county was just people from all over the world lived there. And so, it was just a lot of different languages and different cultures and customs and ideas. Um, So, it was a big shot coming from like the Midwest to there. And then going back um, was just kind of like, whoa, things are very different. You used to just. You know the diversity and and the amount of people and then coming back where things are like a little more spread out and a little more um only like a much more limited amount of diversity is um was a big shock and i i was a teenager when that happened so it was kind of like i just took it in from that perspective mm-hmm. um so yeah so i've been kind of all over and i've seen how things are done in you know the south and in florida florida is like a different world (laughs) i mean everybody makes those jokes but it really is just like an entirely different world um and then even just like and then the last 18 years i've been here in the midwest so i've kind of readjusted to all of that
0: well so uh we i mean it seems like it'd be tough right to have to move and have to sort of start over again and again were you uh were you social in a way that it was easy for you to sort of find new communities in all the places
1: I think, um, no, like I'm an introvert at heart. and I think I've been that way, like my whole life. Um, I think moving, you know, we moved every three or four years. Um, and, but I think that definitely makes you very adaptable mm. and you very much. And I've always been that way. just very like, go with the flow. Let's just make it work. But I think one of the things that really helped was, um, I have three brothers. And so we always had each other wherever we were. And so we were usually each other's like first friends whenever we moved. And so we kind of had to get along. Um, so I think that
0: helped a lot. It's interesting that you call yourself an introvert because you're also a teacher. And I'm always interested in these people because I feel like there are a lot of people, and I relate to it as well, who do these jobs where you have to be sort of always, uh, I don't know if performing is quite the right word, but there's that outward expression and exploration and that social dimension to a lot of jobs people have. And people who are good at those jobs a lot of the time say they are introverts So, I mean, how do you, how do you square that? I mean, would you have ever guessed that you would have done something so social as a job?
1: You know, I don't, I think any introvert will tell you that, especially introverts who are in teaching will tell you that it doesn't feel exactly like socializing because you are talking about a thing that interests you. Um, so there's that level of it. You're not really doing like the small talk, which can be so draining for introverts, but it's more like, um, you're just you're in your little niche world but the amount of like talking and answering questions and like processing all of that is like extremely exhausting because it's like it is like performing you're on for a long time during the day and even like yesterday I just did after school I did like four hours of parent-teacher conferences and so then that was like draining because that is some small talk and then kind of getting to the point um over and over and over again with people I've never met before because you know we're in a pandemic and you're not like seeing parents as much as you normally would. Um, so that was like draining and it's just extremely tiring. By the end of the day, I'm just like, Oh my goodness, (laughs) I am exhausted. I don't want to think or talk to anyone for the next eight hours. (laughs) Um, but again, when it's a, it's something that you love and that you're passionate about it, it, you want to go back and do it all over again the next day.
0: Did you have any idea that that's what you were interested in when you were a kid?
1: Oh yeah. I was like a school kid for sure. I loved going to school. The first school I went to, we like wore uniforms. And so I was very excited about like, you know, wearing the uniform and doing the homework. I remember going to first grade, being very excited because first graders got to have homework. They had to write their spelling lists like every day, every week or something. And I was just so excited to like have homework and to do that. And I've just always loved the school environment and just learning and just the routines of it. And so I knew from like a pretty young age that I definitely wanted to go back and be a teacher.
0: Was uh, why was homework exciting? Did it make you feel like an adult or to it, like to a kid's mind, or what, what was it?
1: Yeah, probably it just made you feel a little more grown up to have like this responsibility and this thing that you did, and um, especially like you know, again, I had three older brothers and they were always doing things before me, so I was always like playing catch up, basically, and, and so yeah, when I'd see them doing homework, was like, well, I don't have homework that's lame. And so I was excited when like, finally it was my turn.
0: But it, it didn't uh, turn you off once you actually had responsibilities and realized it's not always that fun.
1: I mean, everybody, you know, every kid goes to a phase where you're like, oh, I don't want to go to school. It's the worst. And um, there were definitely like, as I got older, you know, math got harder for me and I was, it was very like, I don't want to do math. I just want to do grammar all day. Um, but they don't let you do that. Um, so yeah, there were definitely still aspects of school that I was like, I can't, I can't do this anymore. And even like the social aspect, you know, you get into a phase where just everyone annoys you for existing. And so, but that's like teenagers. They're always like that. So,
0: (laughs) so when you were, you were in Nebraska, when you, uh, when you went to college then as well. Okay. And so before any of that though, so maybe you were always gravitating toward education in some way, were you politically aware or engaged at any point when you were growing up?
1: Um, no, I would say um, not much. I think it was discussed like in my home a lot, but um, as far as like my, my involvement and the involvement I saw like in my family, it was mainly just talking about stuff and voting Um, my parents definitely made a big deal about like going to vote and making sure you did it every chance you could. But when it came to like anything beyond that, it was sort of like, no, we don't really do
0: that. So, um, military families, I feel like at least stereotypically are pretty conservative. Was your family conservative?
1: Yeah. My parents are, um, conservative and I was raised in a pretty conservative home. Um, and so that was basically like my understanding and my approach to politics for most of my younger life. Um, But then, yeah, it wasn't until just kind of over the past um, decade or so of my life that I've started to change my mind or just like formulate my own opinions and pick those things apart and, you know, decide what I really think on my own without just kind of going with whatever I was told.
0: So what what were some of those things that were uh, broadening your horizons or making you uh, shift your orientation?
1: So for me, it definitely, um, I think the big shift was the Me Too movement. Um, Watching that unravel was, I mean, every time I reflect on it, I really think about just what a wild four or five months that was of just, you know, this floodgate of um, information coming out about just like anyone. It really, for a while, it felt like no one was safe. It didn't matter what industry you were in or how powerful you were. If you had done something, people were coming for it. And it was really awesome to like, see so many women coming forward and, and men as well, just like stepping forward and being like, you know, we're not gonna um, allow these people to hide behind their power anymore. Um, and that was amazing. But to me, it was kind of like, it was something that I definitely connected with um, uh, just as a woman and, and watching these women come forward. And, and um, I feel like I'm an anomaly. I've never been in one of those situations, um, but I really, the more I saw women coming forward, and sharing their stories, the more I realized that it, sometimes it felt like it was only a matter of time until it happened to me. Um, and that was the problem. Like, it shouldn't be just a matter of time. This shouldn't be a thing that happens so frequently and so regularly to so many women. Um, so, you know, you you bond in that solidarity there and then just kind of seeing the the shift in our culture and in our politics when it came to believing women and to putting women in positions of power um, to create change just sort of definitely pushed me. I think I was already like leaning toward a lot of those things, um, but it kind of just pushed me towards that. And when you find that community of women um, who are supporting one another and are just like all in together, it's so empowering.
0: So is that something that uh, was helping inspire you try to take some power beyond teaching and maybe move towards something political?
1: Yeah. So shortly after I started, um, thinking about running for um office and looking at you know making sort of like small moves and just being more vocal you know online and and looking into research i came across um some women who were also running some of the other women who are currently running for council and so i know i i believe you've had naomi on your show Mm -hmm. and so she sort of um arranged this coalition of women who were all running and we kind of formed like formed this support group together. Um, and it was just, it was so incredible to me how she reached out to me and contacted me and was just like, Hey, are you thinking about running? And I was like, yes. And she was just immediately all in. And I've never really experienced that kind of community, um, and that kind of, uh, camaraderie and just like support immediate support. Like, and I was very surprised Like, you. You don't really know me, but, um, she was so supportive. And then the other women that, um, were a part of that group, everyone was just like, we're going to do this together. And it was just, I still get emotional when I think about it, just being a part of that group and, um, yeah, seeing what women can do when we, we join forces.
0: So um, had you spent, uh, any significant time with people who were elected either to city council or in any, any other capacity?
1: Um, so I've been chit-chatting with a former council member. I'm not going to put his name out there just in the interest of his privacy. But, um, yeah, so I, I am in contact with a former council member, and, and he and I have been had conversations here and there. And it's been very insightful as far as to, like, what the job actually entails and how much um, what you're actually doing on a day-to-day basis. And so that's been informative. But one of the things I learned through those conversations is I imagined council was a very collaborative group. Um, you know, there's seven people representing the entire city. I imagine that they would be, and especially when there's issues that um, affect more than one district, um, I would imagine they would be working together. And from what I've gathered from conversations with him, that's not really the case. There seems to be not a lot of um, collaboration um, among council members. and, And then that kind of extends to other aspects of our city government. And so I find that somewhat disappointing, but also um, knowing like just the people who are running and and the potential of the council that we have at the moment, um, I know that would definitely change.
0: If you're just tuning in, I'm talking today with Sarah Smolin, who is running to represent District 4 on Omaha's City Council. Yeah, I mean, I I certainly have found the more proximity I get to elected officials. uh, You sort of grow up, or at least I did, with this idea that we really do have two systems of dueling ideologies of people who both, or sides that both have just different ideas of how to make everything better and help people. And then, uh, you know, I've certainly found that I've gotten a lot more cynical, and it seems like There's actually a lot less ideology and a lot more just sort of like power play. And honestly, there's a lot of, I don't mean this specifically about the Omaha City Council, but in our politics in general, there's a lot of this sort of just nihilism of you'll say whatever will get views or whatever will get you attention. And it's just sort of this, it's this game that's very unrelated to helping people a lot of the time. And I think in, on top of that, there's the the exclusivity that it seems like is hopefully not so much of an issue now. But a lot of people feel like they're not qualified to run for office, and like they they don't actually uh, feel I don't know I don't know what it is exactly about who thinks that they get uh, the the privilege of being able to run for office. But it's sort of like they're put on this pedestal. But then also there's sort of just this distance from the average person, even though we're supposed to have like a representative system, uh, Mm -hmm. it doesn't, you know, usually a lot of the elected bodies don't actually represent the culture really that much. It's sort of like there's a lot of lawyers and nothing wrong with lawyers, but that's not, Mm -hmm. not everybody in the, in the whole country is a lawyer. So, I mean, uh, did you have any sort of system or any sort of uh, evolution or sort of awakening on your own about some of that or like whether you're qualified or where you stand on any, any of those issues?
1: Oh, yeah. Like, imposter syndrome is real. um, And I think it happens to all of us. And especially like going into this and seeing some of the other candidates who are running who have lots of great experience in like nonprofits and housing and all these really awesome things. And I really am just kind of an everyday person. You know, I'm a teacher. I've worked in retail, I've worked in childcare. Uh, You know, I've, I've been a stay at home mom sometimes. And, Um, A lot of times you think, and I hear that a lot. I hear a lot of people like, well, I don't really know anything about politics or, you know, I I don't think about this stuff very much. And so they feel like they're not allowed to be a part of the conversation. And I would have to say, I absolutely disagree a hundred percent with that idea and that feeling of like, you have to have special qualifications or be of a certain age in order to be a representative for people. Um, If anything those voices the voices of everyday people matter the most because they're the ones who are seeing policy and action and they're the ones who are seeing the flaws in it and the great ways and the ways that it's being exploited and so i would say those people ha- should have the strongest voice because they're the ones who are dealing with it um and if you know if you go if you send your kids to the schools and you live here and you drive on the roads you pay your taxes you work here you are just as qualified as anybody else to take part in this and to demand a voice and to be represented on those bodies
0: yeah it it occurs to me uh that it's this odd It's this odd uh, theory that certain people have had on a local and a national level that like a billionaire will know how to represent me and address some of my problems uh, better than somebody who's going through a lot of those same problems. Or like, even as far as schools, I know Governor Ricketts has a lot of opinions on uh, what he calls government schools, but I mean, I'd, I don't know that a billionaire has a ton of exposure to those schools in general. As, and so, I mean, I, it, it seems good to me to have that diversity of different people from different backgrounds, different experiences, different jobs, but also it's kind of daunting, right? Because to have to juggle being in office, I mean, would you be teaching while you're while you're in the city council or would that uh, supersede it or what would that look like?
1: Yeah. So um, if you've talked to any teacher, they'll tell you it's more than a full-time job. It is, you know, you're contracted technically you're supposed to do 40 hours a week. You spend about 35 of that um, or more teaching and then the rest of it has to be prepped. So on average, teachers are probably spending likely, 60 to 90 hours a week working um, if they want to, you know, keep up with everything. Um, And it is, I really think teaching is one of the most exploited industries that we have in this country. And we really take advantage of people because, you know, at the end of the day, it's for the kids and how can you say no to the kids? Um, So yeah, if I, when I was, if I was elected to city council, um, that would be my full-time focus. I would not, there's no way on earth anybody can do that and teach. Not to mention that the fact that like, City council meetings currently are held at 2 p.m. on a Tuesday afternoon, and on 2 p.m. at Tuesday afternoon, I was in a room full of seventh graders today. So that's just kind of out of the question.
0: <laughs> well, so uh, why city council specifically?
1: Um, so I started digging in over the summer, um, you know, as we were witnessing the um, protests at downtown over the uh, murder of George Floyd and then James Sperlock. Um Started really digging in because I was seeing a lack of response from our city leadership, um, and they always tell you, you know, go and, and find your representatives and contact them. And I didn't even know at the time who mine was, um, so I looked them up um, along with, you know, just city council and started doing my research and digging into it. And like, well, what do they do? What are they responsible for? What kind of power do they actually have? Um, and so what I found was, I think city council has more power and more leadership potential. Than what they are currently acting on, or maybe what they've acted on in the past, um, and it's more than just approving budgets and um, you know approving retail or liquor licenses. They can affect positive change here um, that would be lasting in a long way, especially when it comes to things like housing and um, social justice, and even just like with the COVID response. Like they have more authority than I think people realize. Um, so as I started getting into it and looking at my own council member, I just became very disappointed by the lack of um, information and communication that was being um, put out. There really wasn't much coming in or going out. And I just didn't find that acceptable. Um, and so and then as I was talking to other people in my district, they were expressing the same ideas. Um, and so that's when it became very clear that he was not interested in doing his job um, or giving it the attention that it needs. And so I, you know, after researching, I was like, you know, if he's not going to do it, I will. And I'll step up and and take control of that.
0: I think it's interesting that you talk about the authority that they have or the potential to do more, to have more of an impact. I think that... Combined with the fact that a lot of people don't know who their city council representative is, uh, don't know a ton about the city council, they maybe read occasional things in the news. It is interesting. So, I mean, what what are some of the things that you would push back against in terms of what they could be doing versus what they have done?
1: So at the start, um, just the fact that so many people don't know who the representatives are or what they even do is a problem because it's very easy when you're kind of your people are living in ignorance to just kind of do whatever you want. Um, so I think one of the first things we need to do is be actively inviting the community to have a part in that. And some of the ways that we can do that is, um, first, you know, changing those council meeting times. And I know it's been attempted many times in the past, um, but I think it just takes the enough people on council and within city hall to be like, we're gonna do this because it's in the best interest of the people. So changing that to a time that, um, suits more people's schedules you know so ideally like in the evenings possibly on a weekend where people can come and participate and learn firsthand um what's really going on but also just like increasing that accessibility um everything that's coming out of all of our various aspects of government really should be at minimum in english and in spanish um and then eventually to every um language that's represented here in omaha um just because you know, how can you let people know if they're, if you're not communicating in a way that um, is accessible for them? Um, And then again, just like bringing in um, more opportunities to be involved and to engage um, and to hear from them directly. A lot of times, like, especially when it comes to like, say, for example, the budget, um, that thing gets worked on all year round, but then it's presented to the city um, basically when it's almost totally finalized. And then the city, you know, citizens are allowed to you know, voice their opinions and comment on that. But really at that point, it's pretty much set in stone. There's not a whole lot of changes that can be made. And that's just not how we should be doing it. We shouldn't be, the government shouldn't just be like, we'll figure this out, trust us. They should be having constant meetings with all the different aspects of government and the people who are affected by that to, to really figure out how to effectively disperse the funds and and refine that Um So that's just one of the ways I think that we can be expanding that and bringing everybody in and just like letting people know, like, yes, we're the governing body, but you are the governing body through us and needing to make sure that our actions reflect that.
0: Yeah. And a theme that's come up a lot, especially as I've talked to people running for mayor is this idea that Omaha has never really been all that cohesive in terms of trying to have one cohesive culture. It's sort of all these pockets, of some people who won't even go to certain parts of the city or have all these preconceived notions. So, I mean, how do you get to the point where the city council can represent, uh, you know, all of those pockets or, I mean, it seems like ideally to try to move towards something that's a little bit more cohesive and understanding as a whole.
1: Yeah. So I think one of the best ways would probably be when we look at like the transportation pipelines in the city, um, a lot of times, you know, that's how you get to where you're going. And I think if it's not easy or if there isn't a streamlined way of doing that, you're going to avoid parts of town. Um, so, you know, the orbit line is great getting you up and down Dodge, but there's, you know, down here in South Omaha, Dodge is quite a ways away from us. And so we would need one like that and make on say L street or Q street, um, And that would just make it easier for people to get to and from. And, you know, South Omaha is a great place to be. um, And it's not, and people, you know, have their ideas about what it is or what it isn't. Um, But I think that making it easier just to get down here would definitely bring people in to see all the wonderful little hidden gems that are here in South Omaha. um, And just, you know, expand, expand the idea that, you know, there can be great parts of the city all over the place. Um, I know like 24th street does a good job of connecting north and south Omaha, but we need to like in- encourage people to get out there on 24th street, bike up and down it, um, or take a walk or, you know, ride your skateboard. I see a lot of kids in my neighborhood on skateboards. Um, and so if we increase, you know, our bike lanes and our sidewalks paths, just making it easier for people to get around, they're going to explore more. Um, so I think that's one of the ways we can, we can increase that and kind of make us more cohesive.
0: I'm talking today with Sarah Smolin, who is running to represent District 4 on Omaha's City Council. Remember that you can follow Riverside Chats on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and let us know what you think. In fact, do it right now. We'll be back with more of the conversation after this break. Hello, I want to be a munchie boy. Listen to Omaha's new goofy food podcast, The Munchie Boys. Every week, we get food from a different local restaurant. Let's go. We munch. Yes, there is munch. And talk about the experience. What we got. Where did we go? We're still there. Two boxes of food. In lighthearted banter. I just jammed the rest of the Mediterranean in my mouth. Meatball-based items. In a way that is both zany. This is going to be crazy. We might end up throwing up. And fun. My hands are burning. Hell yeah! Every episode features an exclusive song, where we sing about our weekly adventures and feature a different analog synthesizer. It's a synth model. Play the track now. Now, yeah, it Sounds like haha. Bra. Check out Munchie Boys. It's on Spotify, YouTube, streaming or streaming, and most other digital outlets. Uh, that's what uh, happens. Munchie Boys. Munchy boys. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. You can always find our most recent 50 conversations wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe and leave us a review today, or become a patron over at patreon.com/slash riversidechats to get access to the full backlog of conversations I've had with all the fascinating people of Omaha and elsewhere for just $1 a month. Today, I'm talking with Sarah Smolin, who is running to represent District 4 on Omaha's City Council. This is part of a series of conversations we've been doing as Omaha prepares for its municipal elections. Here's the rest of my conversation with Sarah Smolin. So, I mean, you talked a little bit about how over the summer, the protests were part of what was inspiring for you to get to this point. Uh, it does seem like racial tensions are another thing that Omaha has a lot to work through to try to get to a a place of understanding or peace and also to get people to want to be there on all levels right so I mean how how does how does Omaha do a better job than it did in your opinion over the last summer
1: um well I think one of the best ways we can do is just by our city leadership just actually talking about it and getting ready to engage there's a lot of great um racial justice uh, nonprofits and organizations that are doing a lot of amazing work to just educate people and to um, kind of destigmatize a lot of the ideas around talking about racial equity. Um, so I know like Culture house does amazing work. Um, the Omaha abolition research is doing incredible stuff and just I was they did a presentation over the police budget which is like the Omaha budget is such a beast to try to like understand on your own. And they broke it apart and uh, made it extremely accessible and I was so impressed with their work. Um, So those are like some great organizations. I know there's others that are just doing things like Omaha street medics, um, hands out food and things to our homeless um, neighbors and it, and just kind of providing basic needs, especially now when it's so cold. And I think by giving those organizations and organizations like them more of a platform um, and, and having them work with the government and us being supportive of what they do is going to help. It's going to make things seem more approachable and safer. Um, and kind of remove the stigmas around even engaging with that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, I think just like collaboration with those, um, will help a lot and just seeing the leadership step forward and be the first to lead that way, um, would go a long way for
0: people. Well, and speaking of collaboration, I mean, you talked about how It sounds like the council itself may not be as collaborative as everyone would hope it would be. So, I mean, how do you plan to go about getting everybody to sort of work together for goals or to get them to see your side and to have an element of persuasion and genuine communication?
1: I'm very optimistic about the candidates that are running. There's a lot of excellent candidates in every district that are running. And I know, you know, in my conversations I've had with some of them, I know that the, the desire is that we would be working together. So ideally when those people are elected, um, we would just start out straight out the gate, like, let's go, let's do this. Um, but if it ends up to being sort of a mixed bag of like the old and the new, um, I think it would be approaching it from a, a perspective of, you know what's best for our districts, You know, especially like, so my neighboring districts are three and five. Um, and so I would foresee working with those representatives as well Um, Just because we have a lot of overlap with neighborhoods and and different businesses and things. Um, So just working with them and being like, well, let's work in the best interest of all of our people and seeing um, getting support from each council member for all these different things would be important. And then, you know, obviously, like, there's a there's a layer of of compromise to that, but also a layer of like, no, we're going to we're going to stick to our guns and do ultimately what's in the best of, of the people who have elected me.
0: Well, it seems like there is a a lot of the the conversation around best and uh, old and new. I mean, sort of like you have different ideas of what's best. And uh, some of that seems to come from, as I know Jasmine Harris talks a lot about, is this idea of stasis versus change. And that a lot of people do resist change because they're comfortable in some respect with what they have, or they worry that just to do something different would potentially be worse, and that's enough to be kind of scary So, I mean, I guess a question I have for you is if we sort of have a more open view of what Omaha can look like, what what are some of the big changes that maybe people aren't uh, aware that they'd actually be happy to see? Or what, like, uh, I know trash and compost and recycling is one that gets brought up a lot for it, but what's your vision for an Omaha that's more open to change in more dramatic ways?
1: Um, So I think to start that, to sort of open that gate would be to meet some of the needs that people have already been talking about that they desperately need. And so pretty much every candidate is running on like improving streets. And that's always like a big you know, topic of conversation like every year, you know, with street repair and updating uh, damaged and old roads and re- snow removal and all of those things. There are ways and there are techniques within it that we can streamline those processes. We can and look at more of a long term plan to get our roads updated. And to keep them updated, um, and I think it's just a matter of we really need to look at the resources we have available and determine if we're using them effectively. And that's where we're going to really have to like dive into the data, the data on that, um, and then see what we can do to bring that up. And so I think like when people are satisfied with the roads, then their intention is going to turn to the other things that perhaps we need. And so then um, along with the roads, we can bring in like transportation equity, so increasing our. Um, usage of the bike lanes and allowing e-bikes on things, and um, keeping those bike lanes clear of garbage, um, and just p- preventing people from parking in them, and just kind of making them the main veins. And then I think people will just begin to see that change is good, and it's it's a good thing, and we can improve on stuff. And yes, it is scary, and but you know, this whole year has just been a year of change and unknowns and short-term plans and just doing our best and we're weathering it it's been rough but we're making it through and i think we will continue to go through that and um you know we've proven that we can handle this so causing those changes it's gonna be okay it'll hurt a little bit but in the long run it'll be good
0: do you think that covid has brought anything to light because it seems like it does highlight a lot of specific issues uh, socially and maybe has shifted some views people have on certain social safety nets. Has that uh, opened some doors you think for Omaha going forward that maybe would not have been illuminated uh, without the drastic change we've gone through this last year?
1: Yeah. Oh my gosh. I think COVID has definitely brought to light a lot of things, um, a lot of cracks in our so- our society, not just here in Omaha, but like in the entire country. And I think one of those biggest ones is um, talking about, um, fair wages. And, you know, we relied heavily on our fast food workers and our brochures and retail chains, um, throughout this whole thing, especially when we were like more locked down and still those jobs are like undervalued and kind of looked down upon because, you know, their minimum wage or their, you know, low skill jobs, which I You know, I don't, it's not a low skill. People act like working in retail is something that anybody can do. And that's not true at all. You have to adapt to so many changing situations all the time and manage to do the whole thing with a smile on your face. And that is not a low paying skill. That is a very valuable skill. Um, So I think just like increasing um, the appreciation, but also just the wages, paying people a fair wage for the work that they're doing and um, providing them with the benefits that they deserve, according to, um, you know, how much they work and all that good stuff um, would be one of the things. And then even like, so as a teacher, obviously, um, we've been through quite a year, um, a lot of adapting, a lot of working and um, um, a lot of changing plans, Sometimes at the drop of a hat. And I think um, it's just really revealed we've always known teachers are overworked and underpaid. Um, and I think this has just kind of brought it out even more and just shown us how much schools play a very important part in just the functionality of our society. Um, you know, when we took kids out of school, suddenly it was like, who's going to watch all these kids while their parents are at work? And so then it's like, okay, we need to come up with a solution for this. And then, um, just even looking at, okay, well, do these kids really need to be in school? And I think when you look at like, do kids need to be in school for seven or eight hours a day? Some kids sure, but some kids no. but you can't even entertain that idea because then you're like, well, what are they going to do if they're not in school, if somebody's not supervising them? And so, and then, you know, we've looked at the crisis that kids face, like when um, school is their safe place or school is the place where they interact with adults who, um, express a concern and are watching out for them or where they get their meals. Um, I think it's just revealed that we need our schools to be functioning um, at the highest level of quality, but also they need to be funded in order to do that. And they need the manpower to do that well. And they need the resources to do that well. Um, And, you know, time and time again, they have not been funded the way that they need to. Um, They've not been staffed the way that they need to. Um, You know, I got, 25 to 30 kids in each of my classes. And that's a lot. It's a lot for somebody. And that's, you know, in other schools, it's even more. And we just need more people in the buildings.
0: If you're just tuning in, I'm talking today with Sarah Smolin, who is running to represent District 4 on Omaha's City Council. This is part of our series leading up to Omaha's municipal election, for which you can vote in the primary on April 6th and the general election on May 11th. I I want to do a quick detour here because uh, there's this pet peeve I have, which is uh, you see certain people who are critical of teachers being hesitant to go back to school when not everyone's vaccinated. And, you know, there's, you know, high density of people in rooms that often don't have windows or necessarily great circulation of air. So, I mean, one of the things people also say is that, oh, when teachers work online, they're not working or they're not uh, they're not actually doing anything. So can I just get on the record? What what was your experience with the spring or then uh, hybrid, uh, partially online, partially not? (laughs) let's, Let's dispel this idea that it's no work. What was it like for you?
1: So I actually started teaching um in September of this year. I had been teaching for a while before my son was born and I took a break. Okay. At the start of January 2020, I was like I'd like to go back to teaching, but my license had expired, so I took some grad courses. My intention was to return to the classroom in the fall. Um and then COVID hit and it sort of derailed everything. And then I didn't think it was very likely that I would get hired anywhere because most teachers were trying to hold on to their job for stability. Um and then I had an opportunity to jump into a long-term subposition, which is where I'm at now. Um, so I jumped in in September. And at the school I'm at, they're doing, some kids are learning remote, and some kids are learning in the class. And so in each class, I have um, at least one, but usually several kids who are learning remote. And then I have, and then various kids who have to go in and out of quarantine whenever that happens. Um, and so then they'll be learning remote. It's very difficult to teach a classroom full of kids and then also give attention to the ones who are online and to troubleshoot all of the um, technological problems that come with that. Like, I can't find this, or this isn't working, or I can't hear that, or that link is broken. Um, So troubleshooting that is difficult for anyone to say. And even if you were entirely remote for anyone to say that teachers aren't really working just because they're not in a building is just absolutely preposterous because there's so much, I would argue, even when you're not in the building, and you're doing entirely remote work, that's even more difficult because suddenly they're not in your environment. Your carefully curated classroom environment where you have set things up to maximize learning and you control the environment. Then they're in their own environment and they're looking at you through a screen. So there's so many factors that are out of your control. And you're doing everything you possibly can to keep those kids engaged. And I think teachers, they're going above and beyond. And you know, I know they're concerned about their kids and about their mental well-being. You know, we've seen a lot of kids who are really struggling with their mental health because so much is unknown right now, so much is unstable, and it's just worsening the the problems that are already existing. Um, and so we're trying to, you know, battle those as well. Um, so yeah, no, our teachers have gone above and beyond, and they will continue to be underappreciated and underpaid, um, probably much longer, which is unfortunate. Um, but ultimately, I know they do it for the right reasons. Um, but no, like, we're working as hard as we can. And they're really kind of making miracles out of out of like absolutely nothing. And so to get any kid, to get a kid to turn on his camera and to like interact in a classroom when, you know, they're in their house with their phone and their friends and, or not their friends, but their family and whoever else is around there is an absolute miracle. So, um, and to do it, like I have middle schoolers and so they're pretty functional and self-sufficient, but to do it with even younger students is incredible. I remember watching when OBS went first day remote learning um, my son is in first grade and <laughs> the whole day was just like so many bugs to work out and so much chaos going on. And she just absolutely soldiered through and did her best. And even by day two, it was like a totally different scenario. She had gotten all the bugs worked out and kids under control. And it was incredible to witness. Um, so, I, yeah, a shout out to those early, early education teachers.
0: Well it actually makes me think that there's uh, an analogy you can draw between the the skills of teaching and politics as well right because there's first of all communication and second of all, communication between people who sometimes want to listen to you and go along with what you're saying. And sometimes you have to sort of get them on your side, right? You have to get, you know, at least meet somewhere in the middle to have some kind of cooperation uh, if you're teaching a classroom of kids, right? And uh, not to call all, uh, political situations a classroom of kids, but some are more than others. It seems like there's maybe some analogies there. So what, what skills would you say uh, are, you know, maybe preparing you for city council that you gained from your experience teaching?
1: Well, again, like communication, but also, so at the heart of my campaign is this idea that information empowers people to action. And all day, I basically try to shove information into kids' heads and hope that they, that it clicks. Um, and it does, it's, it's kind of like planting little seeds, you know, you put little knowledge nuggets in the brain and, and you hope one day that it grows into a beautiful flower, um, metaphorically. But um, yeah, as a teacher, we know how to adapt. Um, you know, you'll teach a lesson. You're like, wow, that did not work at all. I need to change some things up. And so within government, you know, you, you present information, you try to get people on your side. And you're like, wow, that didn't work at all. I need to try something different. And so, you know, we differentiate all the time. We're constantly um, kind of pinballing back and forth between different things. And you learn kind of how to manage each of your different individual classes. I have three ELA courses. Each group is wildly different from the next. And so you adapt to each one. Um, within the court in the span of five minutes, you know that they have between classes. You're like, all right, right, gotta switch into a different mode. Um, so in education, it's always going to be communication and follow up. Um, we do a lot of, you know, I got a lot of kids. I got to chase down, I'm like, hey, you need to turn this in, or hey, did you have questions about this? And so it's constantly like generating feedback from your students and from your parents and from your administrators. Um, so we're very good at just like getting information um, and figuring out what's going on we're also very good at analyzing the data We get a lot of information and a lot of different measurements and we look at that all the time like okay what's working what's not working let's change this let's change that let's see how it goes um and so i think in government it's the same deal you look at the data you analyze it you figure out what's working you make an you make an adjustment um so yes that is how i think teaching hopefully will prepare me
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, and also public speaking to some extent, right? You got to be comfortable talking in front of groups.
1: Yeah, but I think talking in front of it's always, you know, talking in front of people like a peer group is always going to be way more nerve wracking than talking to people like talking to a bunch of 13 year olds does not terrify me at all. But talking to like other adults is frightening.
0: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, well, also, it's frightening, though, that some people in various levels of government uh, are, are kind of similar to talking to 13 year olds uh, <laughs> so sometimes it's um, more analogous than you'd, than you'd wish it would be. Um, right. Okay. So I have your website pulled up here and I want to give some time because there may be things that I didn't ask about or didn't talk about. So as we get sort of close to the end here, what else do you want to bring up or give some time to that we haven't talked about yet?
1: So one of the um, big tenants on my platform is talking about safe and affordable housing. And I know we are, we are entering into quite a housing crisis here in Omaha. And I know in South Omaha, quite regularly I jump on Zillow and I just check out the homes in my area and the homes in South Omaha just to see like what what does the market look like? Um we bought our home two a little over 2 years ago um in the summer. And so always the summer housing market is going to be crazy, but that particular year I think we put in like five offers on homes we got outbid, and we put offers above asking price. We got outbid on every single one. Sometimes somebody swooped in with a cash offer right at the last minute. Um, and It took a while, and I just recently spoke to somebody else who just bought a home in the last month, and it was a, still a very similar situation. And so what we're seeing is that the affordable houses um, are getting bought up very quickly by cash investors and not really going to the people who are looking to buy a home for the first time. They may not have a lot of cash on hand. Um, or not be able to afford a brand new home. So they need to buy something older. Um, so those homes are getting snatched up and, you know, getting flipped and resold or turned into rentals. Um, and then the homes that are like in the affordable range need a lot of work. Um, they, they're they not updated. They might need new kitchens, new bathrooms. And those are expensive updates. Um, maybe they need a new roof or new siding. Again, those are very expensive updates. So people are being forced to buy homes that, are gonna eventually, you know, over the next five to ten years gonna take a lot of money from them before it turns into a valuable investment. So that's a big problem that we've got to find a solution for. I know there's a lot of great programs um, other than like if you're a first time home buyer, obviously there, you can get a first time home buyer's loan, but there's other programs available. We bought our first home on a NYFA Hub loan, and we ended up only putting down at the most you need a thousand dollars on hand. And at closing, I think we wrote a check for like 88 bucks or something. It was an amazing program. And that got us into our first home. And that's kind of the biggest hurdle is getting into that home for the first time and then moving on from there. Um, but then also just like when it comes to our renters, um, we just need tenants rights. And so I recently joined the tenants rights to council coalition, I believe is what it's called. Um, it's a, it's a coalition of people who work in housing and, um, just citizens who are concerned to look at, um, securing tenants rights. And I know that's in legislation right now as well. Um, just making sure that when tenants have to go to court. Um, for an eviction hearing, that there is counsel there to let them know their rights. A lot of times, if you're not in, if you're not familiar with what your rights are, um, you're not going to be able to advocate for yourself. So these people come in and advocate on behalf of these people um, and ensure that they don't get unnecessarily evicted from their home. So um, that's definitely one of the things. There's also an organization here in South Omaha called Kennedy South that they are in the process of building sort of a mixed income housing um so some some housing is at market rate some is at a reduced rate with like section 8 financing and uh so it's like both of those in it and then they also look at making a community that's you know easily accessible to where um the schools are nearby and jobs are nearby within walking distance and you know, a doctor and groceries and all those things. And so I look forward to them, they just got off their feet um, during this pandemic. And so they're kind of like, trying to make progress in a time when it's hard to do that. Um, But that's definitely like an organization that I would keep an eye on and, and support whenever I can. And then as they continue their work throughout other aspects, other areas of Omaha to support that as well.
0: And I'm sure it's been uh, difficult. You know, I I talked to people, I was starting the show back when you could run normal campaigns that didn't all have to be online and on Zoom. And now we've got the horrible weather. So, I mean, how has it been uh, actually trying to campaign at the moment?
1: Yeah. So, yeah, it kind of stinks the the way that um, Omaha has set up its municipal elections is it's always in the spring after a presidential election. And so for people running for those local offices, it's, it's a lot, even on a good year, it's a lot because you know at this time of year, we're pretty burnt out from this previous election. People don't want to hear about anybody who's running for anything right now. Um, and especially after this one. Um, so that's kind of not working in the favor of incumbents. And then even just like the weather, you know, you, you ideally, if with like this election, for example, is in the fall, you would have an entire summer to knock on doors. And nobody's going to be knocking on doors when there are like no degrees outside. We're in negatives. Um, It was like negative eight. I think when I left my house this morning, Um, nobody's going out and that nobody should, but it does work against those people who are trying to unseat incumbents because it's limiting the time that they have to meet with voters face to face. And it's working against um, those incumbents because yeah, people are burnt out. They're tired of hearing about this, that, or the other thing. And they don't want to talk to anybody else on the phone. So we are, but unfortunately that's the way you got to do it. So we are, you know, phone banking, text banking, um, doing lit drops. we just drop off the literature and hopefully that will reach enough voters to get the result that we need.
0: And so where should my listeners go to learn more about your campaign and everything else you're up to?
1: So my website is Smolin, the number four Omaha.com. It's Smolin with one L, um, and that is, you can find, that's my website where you can find my, uh, my platform. Um, you can donate, you can volunteer all those great things. And I'm on Twitter. Um, the handle is at smolin for Omaha, again, the number four, I'm also on Facebook as well. Oh, and I'm on Instagram. So all those are great places to find out what I'm doing and to get in touch with me.
0: Well, Sarah, thank you so much for talking to me today. I really appreciate you taking, you're taking the time to, uh, you know, educate me on who you are and what you're up to and what your vision is for the city.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. It's a great
0: opportunity. Omaha's municipal elections are just around the corner. The primary is on April 6th, and the general election is on May 11th. You should be able to vote by mail. Hopefully, if you've already registered to vote, you've gotten that little thing in the mail that is your request for a mail-in ballot. So watch out for that. Stay educated vote for the person who you want to represent you. Remember, we also have conversations with several other people who have thrown their hat in the ring, including Naomi Hadaway, Cammie Watkins, Mark Gudgel, Jasmine Harris, RJ Neary, Dewan Lamont-Hayes, and more. You can find all of those wherever you get your podcasts. Go there, subscribe, leave us a review. We appreciate it. Riverside Chats is produced in conjunction with KIOS and Exharving Creative. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos. Our artwork is done by Ben Matukowicz. As always, thank you for listening. I'm Tom Noblock.